Blog Talk Radio. All right, folks, welcome to another edition of Theology Matters. Today we have a special debate episode. We are going to be debating apologetic methodologies as well as divine simplicity. And so we're going to need as much time as we can get, so we're just going to kind of jump right into this. Uh, If you've not liked us on Facebook yet, be sure to go to Theology Matters, Facebook, and uh, Theology Matters with Blues. You'll find our podcast there, our past shows that we've done, previous shows that's coming up, and uh, you can kind of follow us online there. So this week, tonight's show, we are going to be hosting a friendly debate between two Christian scholars. During the first hour, we're going to be discussing the classical view of God or divine simplicity. Second hour, we're going to be looking at natural theology and the difference in apologetic methodologies, primarily uh, presuppositional versus classical apologetics. Our two guests have uh, both been on the show before. Dr. Brian Huffling is the director of the undergraduate program and assistant professor of philosophy and theology at Southern Evangelical Bible College and Seminary uh, in Matthews, North Carolina, and Zach Hicks. Uh, Zach received a BS in religion and philosophy from Chowan University, received a Master's of Art in Philosophical Studies, uh, focusing Christian thought from Liberty University and has received many honors. So, uh, Zach and Brian, are you there? Yeah, we're here. Yes, sir. All right. So we've kind of talked about it, and what we were wanted to do is uh, give give uh, Brian a few minutes, uh, ten minutes or so, to kind of lay out the case for what classical theism is, and uh, then we're just going to have a let them have a uh, informal dialogue on some of the issues that uh, Zach sees with that, and just have a good discussion with it. So, um, Dr. Helfling, I will turn it over to you for the next ten minutes or so. Okay. Well, thank you for having us on the show, and thank you again, Zach, for for uh, being available for this discussion. Um, the direction you want, or you want to, you know, pinball me back into the. You want me to go? You go ahead and, and do that. Uh, we're talking about the classical view of God, what that means. Uh, I'm going to look at uh, my position I hold to the Aristotelian Thomistic position. It is the classical position, the traditional historical position for uh, what God is and how philosophers and theologians have viewed him throughout centuries and millennia. And we'll start with, uh, I think you mentioned divine simplicity already, we'll start there and I'll show how that a conception of God, God being simple, will grow into other and lead into other attributes as well. There have been two major philosophical strands of thought throughout history, and uh, especially in the church age regarding how it relates to theology, and that is Platonism and Aristotelianism. 
And really, we can we see both traditions or people in those traditions, uh, like uh, Augustine and Anselm in the more Platonic tradition, and people like Thomas Aquinas, more in the Aristotelian position. Uh, they, they both have historically held to simplicity. So what is this thing called simplicity? Well, to give an Aristotelian Thomistic explanation, uh, in order to understand what simplicity is and why people hold to simplicity regarding God's essence, it's important to, first of all, introduce some terms and categories in terms of the field of metaphysics. And metaphysics is just the study of what it means to be real or to exist. And so when philosophers are talking about metaphysics, uh, they're asking questions of what does it ultimately mean to be real, what does it mean to, to exist, what does it mean for a beagle we might see in a field, uh, how does that beagle differ from Snoopy, who's a beagle on TV or on cartoons? And so Aristotle and his metaphysics, this is being over simplistic and getting really uh, going through it quickly. So if you want anything emphasize better or explain better, then, then feel free to tell me to do that. Um, Aristotle held to several metaphysical categories, which would be very informative for uh, the discussion of simplicity. And that uh, one, one category is the distinction between potentiality and actuality. For Aristotle and for Thomas Aquinas in this tradition, to be in act is simply to be in a state of existence. So if something is in act or has actuality, then the thing is said to be real or actually exist in some way or another. Uh, to be in a state of potentiality uh, is to be in a state of possibility. So if something is potential, that means uh, it could it could be a certain way or not. So a thing could potentially be in a different location, or a person, for example, could potentially uh, grow taller or smarter, or hair could grow longer, it could be cut, and so on and so forth. And so for Aristotle to be in, in potential just means that you have some capability to be something that you're not currently. And that's what a change is when something goes from being in potential to being in a state of actuality, a change has occurred. And the famous way of putting that in, in scholastic terms is something is reduced from potentiality or from potency to act or actuality. And we see Thomas Aquinas, when you say his name, uh, people will, will generally, if they've heard of him, will recognize his name in terms of his discussion of the five ways or five proofs for God's existence. And he says that the first way and the most manifest way that we know that God exists is through the argument from motion. Now, motion does not mean movement in the sense of inertia or if I throw a baseball to my friend down the street, uh, we would say the ball is in motion or movement. That's not what Aquinas means. To be in motion means that you're in a state of change. And again, that means going from potentiality to actuality. And Aquinas and Aristotle would both argue that something can only go from a state of potentiality to a state of actuality by something that is already in actuality. In other words, something cannot be actualized from itself, not in the same sense in, in, in the case, not in the same sense as if it were potential. In other words, a being that exists in act would have to bring in another being from potency that is already in act. So the being 
So one being bringing in being B, being A, bringing in being B, who would say being A is in Acts and then brings being B into act from the potential it had to exist. We also could say that one being could just change another being. One being could do any kind of number of things to change it. But the change has to come from something that's already in act. And Aquinas would say that this process of one thing being in act and moving one thing from potency to act cannot go on to infinity because that wouldn't be any explanation at all. And so there's got to be something that is not composed of both act and potentiality. In other words, for Aristotle and Aquinas, everything that we see in existence or in our experience is composed of both act and potency, existence and the possibility of being able to exist in a different way. Uh, he says, though, that that can't go on forever, so there's got to be something that's not composed, that is, it does not have both act and potentiality as aspects of its being. And since potentiality is nothing in and of itself, just the possibility to be something else, then what he would arrive at, if you look back in uh, one being before the other, is you would eventually arrive at a being that is pure act. In other words, a being that is pure existence with no admixture of any kind of potentiality whatsoever. And he says that we, we know this being by the term God. And so for Aquinas, God is pure act or pure existence with no potentiality whatsoever. And we could give other arguments for, for God being pure act and uh, that sort of thing, but for the sake of time, we'll just leave it at that. And so from this, from being uh, in pure act, since there's no division among God, God is infinite, that is, he has no parts, he has no division among himself, he's pure existence with no potentiality, uh, we would say that God is simple. And what that means is that God does not have parts. Uh, God does not have any kind of metaphysical parts, whether it be potentiality or actuality. There's no distinction between his essence and existence. God does not have a form and matter composition like we do in terms of having a a form over human nature coupled with matter, in this case, uh, physical, corporeal matter. There's nothing that's joined together. It's just pure, complete, actual existence. And so when philosophers and theologians talk about God being in this state, having no um, parts in any way, shape, or form, Aquinas has about eight or so different parts that he denies of God in his uh, magnum opus summa theologica in question three of part one. Uh, he denies any kind of parts at all because God is infinite without division and pure act and therefore we say God is simple. So divine simplicity is a denial of any kind of parts or division in God in any way, shape, or form. And so that simplicity, now we're going to be discussing mainly that, but let me just say classical view encompasses more than just simplicity, although I think simplicity probably is the most important attribute for putting one on a particular trajectory regarding his philosophical theology. So if you, if you accept divine simplicity, then you're on track to being a classical theist and you're going to affirm certain things about God that I'm going to mention in just a minute. And if you deny divine impassibility, you're going to go on a different trajectory and uh, reject the classical view, at least in, in part, and I would, I would argue that if you reject simplicity, you're going to reject a lot of classical theism. You're going to at least be logically and um, 
held to, in a sense. So simplicity, if that is a not denial of potentiality, and if potentiality is a principle of change, if God has no principle of change, then he, by definition, cannot change, or we say God is immutable. Um, we also say that God is impassable and that he cannot be affected from without. We, we say he cannot be affected, quote-unquote, from within or from without in any way, shape, or form because he doesn't have the metaphysical prerequisites to be changed. So he would be simple and then immutable and impassable. And then if the definition of time is a sequence of events or before and after a change, uh, then he would be eternal or atemporal or outside of the uh, the time space time continuum. Of course, and he also would be immutable. I'm, I'm sorry, immaterial, in that he would not be composed of any kind of physical parts as well. And so, I can go over anything else you want in terms of the classical view, or go anything in more depth. But that is a, a very brief snapshot, and I'm not sure how much time I've taken to do that. So I'm going to stop and see if you or satisfy that picture or not. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Huffley and uh, Mr. Hicks. If you, uh, I'm just going to kind of let you guys uh, just have a dialogue here. Uh, if you want to go ahead and ask some questions and you guys just have a dialogue, we'll just go ahead and do that. So okay. go ahead. Sounds good. Yep. Um, to, to what degree... Um, myself and Dr. Huffling are on the same page here. Okay, we're, we're both on the on the same page um, in that we both believe that uh, God, in, in His essence, does not change. Um, we're in we're in the, on the same page in that God does not grow in knowledge the way He does in say open theism, or He does not. Uh, Grow uh, with the universe more mature as 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 he holds in process theology, uh, as it's held in process theology. We're on the same page in that regard. Um, but my my issues, and I'm going to just outline my issues generally here. Um, don't feel compelled to try to answer them all at once because I mean we, we'll be talking about this for the rest of the hour. So well, I, I think we can we can address each of these. Uh, Individually, but I just kind of wanted to lay them out at, at, at the start here in terms of where we are uh, asking questions. Uh, my first issue is a methodological one, um, and, and I think it will um, come up again uh, when we start talking about apologetics um, mm -hmm. in the second hour. But uh, it, it was very clearly laid out here that this is an Aristotelian Thomistic position, um, laid out that there have been strains of um, Christian theism throughout history that have been Platonic and that have been Aristotelian. Um, and so my first issue here is whether or not um, we have access to natural theology <clears throat> without, spe without special revelation, whether or not we have access to the kind of natural theology that's going to give us um, these 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 pillars or these frameworks of our of our concept or our notion of God. Um, I mean, when you when you read Aquinas, he's referring to you know quote unquote the philosopher, you know mm -hmm. every other every other question. And he's talking about it, Aristotle. I mean, he's he's very clearly holding to this notion that God has revealed Himself in general revelation in such a way 
that even a pagan like Aristotle um, can go in there and, and understand just doing bare philosophical metaphysics the basic structure of what God is. Um, and, and I would disagree from a methodological standpoint on the prospects of being able to do that successfully. Um, ergo, positions that are built off of that sort of um, theory, I become skeptical of as well. Um, but then from a more strictly Christian perspective, um, I'm I'm concerned with this notion that God cannot have both act and potentiality. Um, when we as Christians affirm that there is a uh, there was a time um, before Christ uh, was incarnate, there was a time before the Holy Spirit indwelled believers, um, and so these are um, these are potential manifestations of God that I would say have nothing to do with his essence, but they are, in fact, potentiality in, in, in terms of um, existence that they, do not, that they do not have at one point in time and that they do at a later point in time. Um, okay. And, and then when we let's say... Let's, let's, hey, Zach. Yes. Let's, do you mind if we hit kind of one, quite one point at a time? Sure, that kind of sure. If that, if, that works better, if that works better, we'll do it that way. Yeah, we don't, I don't want to, I don't want the audience to forget your first objection. So let's just do let's go with the with the first objection there, um, Doctor Elflin. Go go ahead. You guys have a have a dialogue. Okay, um, I might need to clarify something that because I didn't hear an objection. I heard a position, which is fine. Um, you said you have a, a a methodological problem to uh, philosophers from just the point of view of reason. Um, being able to have what you said access to natural theology without the Bible, um, I'm not sure what to respond to because you know I'm not I didn't hear a reason for that in there and maybe maybe you can give us one I know you have okay. reasons I just didn't hear one clearly in there. Right. Um, well, yeah. Okay, that's fine. Um, well, a lot of it has to do with what how we view um, the doctrine of where fall, where man is without the fall. So okay. is, this is a theological, um, this is a theological position informing our philosophy here. So what we have, so what I would hold to, is uh, that man without the fall, uh, man, man in the fall without the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, is going to um, suppress the truth as it talks about in Romans one, mm-hmm. and and this is going to be a a human being who is aware that God exists, but it is going to be revolted by the very notion of him. And and in that okay. and because of that they're going to try to um suppress the truth about God in whatever way is possible. So when a person who is in that fallen state, who I would I would continue to argue is um incapable of choosing to do good, whether that be in, in his act towards other human beings or whether that be in his um, in his academics in terms of studying metaphysics, I would say that his motivations are such that they're going to corrupt the results of his process. And, okay. and, and so when we as Christians base our metaphysics on the results of somebody who has fallen in that way, I object. Uh, is, is this making the, the, the point a bit clearer? Uh, this, this is the issue I'm having here. I don't see 
I don't see how Aristotle, as a fallen man, is going to get an accurate perception of God simply by using reason, simply by doing natural theology, because I believe Christianity teaches that his state as a fallen man is going to keep him from doing that. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I thought I understood that, um, just from your position, where you, where you say you were coming from, I just wanted a little bit more clarity. Um, I would agree with you on most of that. Um, I, I think that that you first said that, um, as Romans 1, te- Romans 1 teaches, that we, as fallen man, suppresses the truth about God, but he knows that God exists. Um, I would point out in that passage, uh, Romans in Romans 1, Paul says that we all know God exists through creation, though, and that and he's re- he's referring to fallen man in this passage and saying that we have knowledge of God. Let me just read it here for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And then he was going to say, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as, as God or, or give him thanks, but they became futile and they rejected him. And I agree with you that that fallen man will suppress the truth and that we, apart from God's grace and the leading of the Holy Spirit, cannot and will not come to, to God in a saving relationship. I completely agree with you on that. Um, uh, it, it, it seems, though, that, uh, and, and just to, to clarify what you just said, you, you, what you just said was, will not come to God in a saving relationship. Right. Um, and, 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 see, I, I, and see, I would take that, and I would take that a step further and say that not only is he not going to come to God in a saving relationship, but because he is an enemy of God in his fallen state, um, the, the very concept of who God is himself is going to be something that he rejects and that he tries to put away. And, yeah, and I agree so, with you that he, he rejects it. So if that's if that's what Aristotle is doing while he's doing his metaphysics, why are we optimistic about his ability to do metaphysics accurately? Okay, um, let me first say you, you keep saying the man rejects it, uh, but it's, and I agree with you on that. That man does reject it, but it doesn't seem that that we are incapable of knowing. And let, let me be real clear about one thing too. Uh, I don't hold to, and Aquinas did not hold to, that we can know what God is in and of himself. Uh, much of what God, much of what we know about God, not all, not everything, but most of what we know about God, is uh, known negatively. So when we say God is simple or immutable or eternal, those are all negative attributes. They're not, none of them are positive. So simplicity just, just negates parts. Eternality just negates time. Immateriality just negates matter. Immutability just negates change. Impassibility negates God is affected by things outside of himself. So we're not saying that we get to God's essence, per se, uh, through metaphysics or through natural theology. But it seems fairly clear that what Paul says in Romans 1 is that we have two things. One, a knowledge of existence of God, which you seem to agree with, um, and it says, what can be known about God is plain, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. So we might we might want to differ on what the extent of this is, like eternal power and divine nature, what that means. But Paul says they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and what has been made. And so I don't think what I'm saying is different from what Paul was saying in Romans 1, 
Um, maybe we want to differ on the content of what that is a little bit. We can discuss it if you want to. Um, but just because man has fallen, and I agree with you that he is, I believe in, in the adoption of uh, original sin and total depravity in the sense that every aspect of our, our being is infected and affected with sin. Um, but that, that doesn't follow that everything that we know about God or about the world is wrong. And so what, what we would say as philosophers and theologians is that, uh, yes, we are fallen, and yes, we make mistakes in our interpretation, both about reality and the Bible. Uh, that, but it seems that Paul says in Romans 1 that we can know about God's existence and something about his nature through what has been made. Well, that's just what natural theology is, knowing what God is like somehow through what has been made. And so I don't think I'm saying anything different from what Paul is saying. And I would just, again, iterate and feel free to uh, clarify, disagree, whatever, that uh, when we say that Aristotle simply cannot know anything, I'm, it seems like what you're saying is that a philosopher, just as a philosopher and not a Christian theologian, cannot know anything about um, the nature of God by way of his study of reality. Well, that, that seems to be inconsistent with Romans 1, and I would, I would say that we... Just because we're sinful doesn't mean we can't know anything. That's, well, that seems to be proving too think, much. I think to to be clear, okay, because um, when I when I said earlier about Aristotle is that he as a pagan is suppressing the truth. Verse eighteen talks about how the unrighteous suppress the truth. Okay, right. so my my dispute here is not with what. Um, Aristotle intuitively knows as an image-bearing um, creation of God. Okay. My my dispute is what are we saying that if he's if he's suppressing the truth, okay, mm-hmm. and then he goes and gives us his metaphysical his works on metaphysics, which are his conclusions about the truth. Well, if he suppressed them and then he gives us these conclusions, then what we're getting from his conclusions are, 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 is the truth having been suppressed, and this is what's left over. And and so, it's not like Aristotle was in a position to um, reject Christ himself because he was mm-hmm. he was alive hundreds of years before. Um, he probably didn't even know a ton about Judaism at the time. So, what exactly, in what way are we are we acknowledging that Aristotle is suppressing the truth before we go and interact with his metaphysics? Okay. Well, let me make a distinction between his his overall metaphysics because you can suppress the truth of a god, which he, Aristotle held to forty something, what we would call. Pure acts based on the number of celestial spheres there were, and that's in dispute as to terms of the number. Well, he held that there was a pure act, um, which would be consistent with, I think, what the Christian God would, would be. And so you can suppress the truth about God's existence, and, and uh, I'm not sure what Aristotle held in terms of uh, he didn't think the gods, because they were pure act, really cared about. Man, so we certainly would reject a lot about his overall "quote unquote" theology. But what we have to look at in his metaphysics, uh, what I'm trying to say is that you can reject certain aspects of his theology proper, 
in acceptance metaphysics. Uh, and what, what I would say there, we would take whatever is good in the metaphysics and accept it and purge whatever is wrong with it. So because he suppresses the truth in one area, namely theology, and I'm, I would agree to I think he probably did, does not mean he suppressed the truth in, say, physics or just in the nature of, of essences or what it means to be. I mean, we would not reject his metaphysics entirely because he is uh, not a believer. I'm, I'm not sure what you mean by pagan, uh, but he because he wouldn't be a Christian, how wouldn't one reject his entire metaphysics? That would seem to be, if not a genetic fallacy, very close to it. And so what we want to do is look at the content of what he's trying to say about metaphysics well, uh, and reality. Well, in in regards to whether or not there there's a genetic fallacy there, um, uh, let, let's also keep in mind that um, the methodological objection against Aristotle is not the same as other objections, which we haven't gotten to yet, which are discussing, okay, what does the Word of God teach about the nature of God, and is that consistent with Aristotle? Um, so, yes, I, I do have a, um, a, a an extreme skepticism about um, whether or not Aristotle can successfully do these metaphysics, but um, I'm not building... Uh, a doctrine of God off of, just off a of rejection of Aristotle. I, I, I'm I'm coming up and saying I, I don't think Aristotle is matching what the Bible says. But while we're at it, um, you know, and then saying what I what I say about his, his nature in, in relation to the truth. Yeah, and I don't think it's a genetic fallacy. And I don't think it's a genetic fallacy if this is what scripture is teaching about the state of, or obviously, which is, which is obviously a point of debate. But if scripture is teaching that man's, that fallen man suppresses the truth this way, it's not a logical fallacy to acknowledge that teaching. It is. If you say that everything he says about reality is wrong, because the Bible doesn't teach that. To say that I have at no point said that Aristotle's wrong about everything he says about reality. I, I've said that I'm I'm skeptical about him being able to outline the pillars of a doctrine of God. And I think those are two yeah. very, very different He's claims. not really doing that, though. I mean, he's he's in his metaphysics, he's not looking so much at what we would call natural theology, per se. He gets there, in a sense. Uh, but his metaphysics is much broader than just, uh, what, what we would call theology proper. I mean, it's about just the nature of things in reality. And he starts off by rejecting the platonic forms, and he goes into what he thinks reality is. And so what, what my point was, and I'm sorry if I overstepped what I was trying to say, is that um, I don't think we can throw out the entire, his entire quote-unquote science. Uh, his, his metaphysics is just a, a science, a first principle of what reality is. Uh, just because he is he's uh, not a Christian, we, so and I think you would agree with that, like, as you think just said. So what we would want to do is, is look at it critically. I'm not saying we shouldn't criti critically read it. I agree with you that we should. And it is a good reason to reject it if, as you said, the Bible uh, says things and teaches things that are inconsistent with it. That would be a really good reason to reject it. But I thought you were saying we should be skeptical of Aristotle just because he was a fallen human being. We should be. 
that we should read his writings, with anybody's writing, Thomas Aquinas included, um, regarding the content. Well, I, and I, I agree with that, but I, I, I would still say that I, I, I would even, I mean, I, I think you and I would, would have to agree that any metaphysics, any any system of metaphysics that is missing the concept of a triune God at the center of it is going to be deeply, deeply flawed. So Did you say missing? Do you mean missing or, or being inconsistent with it? I, I, well, I would because say because none of metaphysics are going to get you to a triune being. Reveal well, theology will, but we'll never get there through natural metaphysics. Well, um, and, and and that comes that ties into our discussion later, our, our second discussion okay. as well. Okay. Um, okay. But, we can table but if you I, want I'm to. saying, but I would say because I would say that doing philosophy, and I think oh. this is also I, I think a, a broader point in which we could have an interesting discussion is um, what is the relationship between. Uh, Philosophy and theology, uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and which one which one gets put in the, the logical order first, and how are we uh-huh. integrating these things? Um, that that's probably something you and I can have a whole other discussion about. Well, um, which, which uh, I, I said ties into this, and I'm sure that'll come out more in the second hour. But yeah, yes, that is where I mean, we're all over right now. Even um, the I mean, in, in terms of uh, because I, I would say that you've got to start a metaphysical system with a triune God. And I agree with you that you gotta get that from special revelation. But that yeah. means that the Bible's got to be the heart of you building a metaphysical system and that and, and that simply relying on human reason isn't the way isn't the way to, to build a metaphysical system at all. So it, it would be like um so we would talk about then um, if Aristotle was was building a house, he, he, it's like he's trying to do the he's trying to do it without putting a foundation in, and and I don't think and I don't think he's going to build a successful house that way. And okay. I don't think and I don't think that's a that's a genetic fallacy in any way, shape, or form. It's just it's how it, it, it ties into that broader discussion of what is the relationship between theology and philosophy and how they work together. Okay. Um, but that, that's I, that'll, go ahead. Um, you go ahead. I was just going to try to. No, I was just going to say that that's uh, all over our second discussion. So I'm going right. to. If you want to respond yeah. a little bit, I can table that until our second hour if you want to. Yeah, I, I think that'd be good because I think there are other interesting points mm-hmm. to discuss about simplicity. Okay. And then we're going to cover that later. Um, yeah, go ahead and uh, if you want to move on with your with your second point there, Zach. If you guys are done with the first one. Um. That um, well, I, I'll, I'll move over move over to this one because for, uh, the the first point of discussion there took, went longer than I thought it was going to. Um, right. The um, you, you said at one point that uh, to be impassable is to uh, is to be such that you cannot be affected from without. Okay. Yeah, that's um, that's what I think is a basic definition of it. Uh, I would, um, and I think that raises a very interesting discussion on um, on divine emotion and whether or not God can have attributes that are voluntary on his part, 
Um, but because they're voluntary, they're not essential to him and thus would be in conflict with the notion of divine, with, with a strong notion of divine simplicity. Okay. Um, there are versions of, there are, ver- there are scholars I've read who hold, who claim to hold the simplicity and they also speak in a at least decently robust notion of divine emotion. But uh-huh. I think if we're talking about a strong sense of simplicity here, I think God having, uh, Real emotion, I think, would would uh, seem to be in conflict with that. By all means, correct me if I'm wrong. Well, there are people. Uh, one of our professors here, Norm Geiser, for for example, holds that God does in fact have um, something analogous to what humans would would call emotions, and God is impassable and simple. And so, um, I think I know where you're going, but yeah, but still not quite yet. So, but. I don't think there's there doesn't have to be depending on what you define as an emotion uh, I don't think there has to be a problem with simplicity if God were to have emotions now if we say those emotions are changed by something even even within then there then that would be a denial of simplicity so people who hold to simplicity who also hold that God has some form of divine emotions or passions whatever you want to call them would have to maintain as Dr. Geisler does. That, that they're eternal emotions and they, they don't change. So if you okay. say that they in any way change, that would be an actualization of the potentiality, and therefore a change that make God would be in time, God would be composed, and therefore not simple. So so if I, would, if I were to say that I sinned, and when I did, I made God angry, uh-huh. the, 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 the notion of simplicity would have to say then, if I'm understanding you correctly, that God did not become angry in reaction to my sin in that moment. But not in a temporal sense where you actually affected a change in God's being in some way. So we we would say that when when the Bible says God is angry, that he is angry uh, because he brings about effects that an angry person would. And so he, he would be angry, we would understand that, as a metaphorical language, not not that God literally is angry, but that he um, is against sin and will bring about disastrous results upon sin. Well, and, and I think I think we can both agree here that um, that leaves a lot of metaphorical language in Scripture referring to, there is a lot referring of to God's yeah. emotion. I mean, because they, yeah. time and time again we see, you know, they grieved. God was grieved when he saw this. God was angry when, when they, they did yeah. that. Um, just, to, just to be clear, are you trying to uh, deny simplicity or impassibility with, I, with I, the emotions? I, I, I'm trying – I don't think – I think we can say that God is without passions and still affirm that he has real emotion – um, in such a way that he reacts to the actions of his created beings um, that would go against divine simplicity um, as long as as long as we define our terms correctly. Okay. What do you see as the difference between passions and some kind of divine emotions? Okay. So if we're if we're talking about um, emotions, um, the, the the definition. Uh, that I that I really like actually comes from a scholar named Matthew Elliott who wrote a book called Faithful Feelings: uh, Rethinking Emotion in the New Testament. Um, he says 
Emotions are not primitive impulses to be controlled or ignored, but cognitive judgments and construals that tell us about ourselves and our world. In this understanding, destructive emotions can be changed, beneficial emotions can be cultivated, and emotions are a crucial part of morality. Um, I, I really agree with this definition there, and I think if we apply that notion to saying that God has real emotions, well, if we apply that definition to emotions, then to say that then that would make uh, having true emotions necessary to God being a moral being. So the the implications become very important there. Um, and, and then I would God's a moral being. Yeah, yeah. And, and then and then. Um, because the way you're describing God's emo- emotions, it's like um, there's this simple economy of cause and effect between our actions and God's actions, and His. Or and I don't even know if we could you if you can say how. It seems like what you're saying is that God acts in certain ways in relation to certain actions by human beings. I don't even know if saying in reactions is the right word here. Yeah, reaction um, wouldn't be a, a good way of putting it. What what we normally would say is that God has eternally caused all of the effects he wants to cause in one simple act of creation. Okay. So there's no temporal reaction going on, yeah. So, so there's no... Te- okay, so, so God's causative action from before, from, from his initial creative act is happening in relation to our act here, and that's what we're calling divine emotion. Um, as emotional beings ourselves, that seems extremely counterintuitive with what we understand emotions to be. Um, I'm not saying, no, I didn't mean anything by emotions in my, my, my description. I just meant that when we say God is affecting things, he's not affecting God's not in God moment one and it causes some effects and then moves to God moment two and it causes this effect. From one simple act, eternal act of creation, he brings about all the effects he wants to affect in that one act. Well, I'm, I'm, I was just saying that's, that's a, what we hold to in terms of, uh, you said that reacting isn't a good way and that's how, you're right, we wouldn't say he's reacting. He caused all of his effects with one simple act of creation. So, but when you when you talked about defining what emotion is earlier, you 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 talked about, um, like for instance, God being angry being the action that God takes in react in in, in relation to sin. Yeah, I'm not defining that as an emotion. I'm saying that's why we would call him angry metaphorically. Yeah. Okay. Um, and and so. But that seems to me to line up with what we just talked about about in terms of what God um what God's act is, okay, so this isn't actually God reacting to anything I'm doing, so God has no reaction to human sin, it's just the cause and effect that he started out before the beginning of the world i I don't see that lining up with the picture that god that that the Bible paints for us at all. Um, if I mean, the Bible does not give us a metaphysical, philosophical picture of God's essence. It just doesn't. And so when we say these kind of things, we're, we're not getting it from the Bible, per se. We're getting it from us probably very slappy <laughs> in, in the face as a as senior position, and I don't mean to, but um, we don't get things like 
our understanding of God's talk and analogous God's talk and what we think about God metaphysically from the text because the Bible is not a textbook. It's not a theology uh, textbook or a philosophy textbook. It is a, a collection of letters and books that God has communicated through real people, through real events, for real reasons. And he communicated in that way, highly figurative, because he wants us to resonate with what he wants to communicate. So instead of saying, instead of going to a long dissertation about God, God's immutability and pure act and all this kind of stuff, we say God is a rock you know, or a fortress. So we, we, we can say these kind of things about God. I mean, the Bible, as you alluded to in my view, is that uh, it is very figurative, and it's probably more figurative than literal in a lot of ways, but it's never literal, I think it is sometimes. Um, and but again, it's, it, not a, it's not a. Uh, if word. God is simple, then then in what way do we bear the image of God? Why is that a problem? I'm, I, well, I, I'm, I'm just, not saying I'm it's just, not a problem. I'm just not clear as to what you're trying to say the problem is. I, I, well, I'm just I I I want I need the definition before I before I see if there's a problem. The definition of what? Uh, the definition of what it means for man to be made in the image of God if God is simple. Well, that's somewhat debated, not not the simplicity piece, but just in general what it means to be in the image of God. Well, we, we are like God in that we um, we have certain perfections that we strive to realize and actualize that God has by his very nature. Uh, we have life, we have being, we strive for the good, I don't think our good and God's good are the same thing. We have metaphysical good. We have moral good. Um, we love other people and other other things, our families and people in the world. And so, uh, to be like okay. God just means that I, we have a will, we have the intellect, we have being. Can can you can you understand how? I I listen to you say that we are like God in that we love and that we are like God in that we strive for the good, when uh-huh. you've said that God is immovable and is pure act mm-hmm. and doesn't have these real senses of emotion that we do, can can you see how that strikes me a bit as doublespeak? Yes, but we don't define love as an emotion. Love and the system that we're coming from is willing the good of somebody. So it's not like we experience love uh, we talk about it in terms of feelings through emotions, through um, getting a fuzzy feeling or whatever. When we say that God loves, even when we say we love, when I say I love my wife, I can mean different things, but ultimately I mean I'm, I'm willing to good for her. And so when we say that God loves the world, uh, we mean by that that God wills the good of his creation. It's not an emotion. In that okay, um when I when I say I love my wife, I certainly mean that I will the good for her, but mm-hmm. there is also a tremendous amount of emotion in that, and that's a great that's a great and beautiful thing, and that's part yeah, of I don't, what I don't disagree with you. Sure, though, yeah. Well, so why is this great and beautiful thing that's part of the love I have for my wife something that would be like that would make God inferior if He possessed it? Well, because it's not inferior, you're supposing that the lack of emotions for God is somehow inferior. We're just different beings. Uh, God is not a, a composed, physical, material, finite, temporal, changing being. He is a, a being of pure existence without any limitation, 
without any kind of need, without any kind of uh, any kind of lack at all. So for God, because of the kind of being He is, it's not an imperfection for God to not have certain emotions. Um, God doesn't. I mean, it, it seems like you've given me a a a stronger volition than than God has in, in at least one respect. Because a stronger volition, I'm not sure what you mean by that. In terms of I, I have the ability to volitionally heap emotion into my relationship with my wife. Uh-huh. And, and God's incapable of doing that, apparently. I, yeah, I, because of the kind of being he is. And our emotions so, can change, and our emotions can can deteriorate and become ruined, in a sense. But God doesn't have that at all. God's, God's love for God's love for your wife and your love for your wife are different, and that your love for your wife isn't perfect, where God's love is perfect. Is that, deterioration, is that deterioration essential to emotion, or is it just part of us being a fallen human being? It's at least because part of being fallen, but, but you've got to take into consideration that, that you're talking about different kinds of beings. So my cat doesn't have an emotion like, like I have, and we could have reactions and, and sensible types of reactions, I guess, but not in the same kind of way because my cats are different kind of beings. And so it's just what's inferior for us is not necessarily inferior for an, another kind of being. Well, because I would suggest that God can have a very real sense of emotion without it having any of the destructive tendencies that uh, that it has with, with mankind, without it clouding his judgment, without it um, changing his internal decree in any way, shape, or form. Uh, he can He can see his creatures in pain and genuinely empathize with that in the moment that that creature is suffering without it, you know, negating any of his attributes in any way, shape, or form. Wouldn't he have to be temporal to do that? And I don't think he'd he'd have to be temporal at all. How how would he be in the moment with you and suffering with you if he's not temporal? I, I I, I think it wouldn't necessarily be a matter of him being in the moment in the way that I, uh, I understand you implying it. I think it would just be a matter of God observing the moment. Um, I, I'm not, I, you know, when I read my favorite novel, I'm not in the moment, you know. I can have an emotional reaction to that novel, even if I've read it multiple times and know exactly mm-hmm. what the what the ending's going to be. I can have an emotional reaction to a part in that novel without me having to be in any sense in the same realm that that novel is taking place in. Okay. Uh, so if we grant divine emotions and you're you're saying God is not temporal, then wouldn't those emotions be eternal? No, they, they, they wouldn't necessarily have to be because all it is is an interaction an interaction with his creative being. So God himself okay. is not temporal, but his but he still reacts with he still interacts with his um beings in in each individual moment that he's given them. Okay. Um and, and so because uh, because otherwise I think here's what we're left with. Otherwise here's what we're left with. And I and I do not believe I do not think that any Thomas uh, that, that's promoting what you've promoted here today 
cognitively affirms theism. I don't think you do. But I think what, what you're left with uh, affirms deism. But deism? I, think the okay. impl- I think the implication of what you're going with here is God decrees everything he's going to decree and all the reactions that are going to happen, and the world is 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 wound up and it's set loose, and all the interactions and reactions that are going to happen are going to happen, and there's no other real meaningful interaction between God and his creation after that initial creative moment. And I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. I don't either. I, I completely reject that model. Uh, a Thomist would wholeheartedly reject it, as, as I am now. So a Thomist is going to say that God does not create the world and leave it alone in the sense that he winds it up like a deist would. would, would. For a Thomist, uh, God not only has to create the universe, he has to sustain it. And so God is more intimately connected with our existence than we'll ever understand. And so God's not leaving us alone. God's causal activity didn't stop, in a sense. It's continuing to keep us in existence. But that sustaining is not a personal interaction. That sustaining that sustaining's not a personal interaction. That sustaining is just the the intentional carrying out of the script that he wrote out at the beginning. But I guess I'm not, I'm not sure why you're why you think that we're a deist. We're just I mean denying divine emotions sort of doesn't lead to a deism. It doesn't mean that God's not interacting with his creation in a sense. We and, do think well, that God's interacting you're, you're, all, all he's not interacting temporally. All, all your interaction is is the is God sustaining his plan over the course of history. It's not it's not actual empathy with his creatures. It's not actual I mean when when we consider what we know of interacting with other persons, I don't see how our interactions with God meet any of those criteria. So it seems to me like God is just he's sustaining the world and the the acts that are going to take place in you know, in relation to his decree are going to take place. And so he may be, um, you know, manually, you know, winding the film here as it plays by, but he's not actually reaching out and, and empathetically interacting with his creatures. Well, he's, I would say he's, he's not doing that in an emotional way, but he is doing it in a God way. I mean, he's, he certainly empathizes with, with creation in a metaphorical sense, and that's why we have the incarnation. That's why we have... Um, when you say in a metaphorical sense, I, I don't see how it's empathy anymore. What, what is your definition of empathy if it's if it's simply metaphorical? Well, also we're trying to deny the uh, the deistic conception that that you're you're thinking that that Thomas have to to rely on, and I've, I've tried to reject it by saying that God is uh, intimately involved in this creation today. And he's he's involved by causing effects and, and doing things. I'm just I'm just denying it, that he's doing it the way in which you want him to do it. But let me kind of just try to point out one thing uh, that, that I see us doing, and we're kind of doing this in different directions. And that is, um, and this will might be a good segue into the second part. I don't know, but you are trying to fashion um, a conception of God by what you think humans are and what humans do, and that may or may not be a good thing. I don't know. And then well, I, I don't I'm agree with that, but that's one way of doing it. And then I am trying to say, based on creation, what I think we see in Romans 1, we're trying to fashion 
a conception of God. And then we say, here's, based on reality, what God would have to be. He couldn't be X, Y, and Z because these things would follow. So it has to be A, B, and C. Well, if it's A, B, and C, then these things have to follow. And so I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying not to fashion God based on what I think he would be if he were a human-like thing. I, I want to make sure that we're... That, that oh, I in my I, I'm not journey. trying to fashion God by what he would be if he were human-like. I'm trying to fashion God based on what, uh, based on what Scripture tells me. God, how it, how God reacts to what happens in His universe. And, well, I agree and with as you we, on that. As we, as as we, as as it, but when you when you try to say God is is um, doesn't love your wife in the way that it doesn't have that capability, then you're saying that's a deficiency on God's part because it's something that's good for a human. I'm trying to say that we don't look at what God is by what humans are. We look at what God is by what he has revealed through general revelation. And this is going to come back to your methodology program. They have a question, and then we can, this might even be a good yeah, question. Yeah, we can go ahead and move that direction now. Uh, we'll do the, the natural theology. Let me go ahead and take a uh, two- or three-minute break, I'll let you guys get a drink or go to the bathroom. And uh, excellent, <clears throat> excellent uh, discussion, gentlemen. It was exactly what I uh, what I was wanting. I think the next section will be just as good, if not better. So, uh, Mr. Hicks, you are doing a great job. Dr. Huffling, uh, always enjoy listening to your insights. So, uh, you guys good with that? Take a take a break for two minutes and then come back. Okay, thanks. All right. All right. So be right back with us, folks. Again, the show is podcasted, so as soon as this show is over, you can get it up on iTunes. You can find us at True Radio Presents uh, on either your Android or your iTunes. Uh, we're right there. It's a network that has different shows. <clears throat> My wife has a show called, I think it's uh, Pro-Life Fridays. So there's a, there's a couple different shows on the network, True Radio Presents. You just look for Theology Matters, and you'll be able to, to get to our show. And then if you want to see some of their other shows, feel free to, to download them as well. Be back in a few minutes. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack for the audience, what about those who've never heard about Jesus Christ? And how does intelligent design differ from a theological doctrine of creation? How do you answer that? Well, creation is always about the source of being, where does everything come from? And uh, one, one way you might, might illustrate that is a joke that was making around on the internet some years back where scientists come to God and they say, we can do everything you can do. God says, oh, that's interesting, show me. And then they say, well, we can, uh, we can create humans from scratch. We can take some dust and, and as they're about to continue, God says, well, wait a second, get your own dust. Okay, now, that's what creation is. It's giving being to existence. Carpenters take pre-existing materials. They're designers. And design is about taking pre-existing materials and finding patterns that point you to intelligence. So uh, another way I illustrate this is you imagine a pan balance. And you've got a bale that includes one side. And you've got one pound weight on this side, which is up. How much weight is on this other side? Well, you know, you know it's more than one. It could be two pounds. It could be five pounds. It could be a million pounds. And that's how it is with intelligent design. We know that there's an intelligence behind the things that we see in nature, and things in biology and cosmology. But getting to an infinite, personal, transcendent, creator God of Christianity is not something the logic of intelligent design can take us to. But it's friendly to Christian theism in a way that 
uh, atheism, uh, the, the Dar Darwinian evolution, and ev uh, materialistic evolutionary theories are not. So it gives you a lot. It takes you some way. You know, it's closer to the kingdom. But if you want the gospel, you're going to have to go to the gospel. For those of you that want to learn more, this book, The Design Revolution, was very helpful to me, amongst many of his other books. You're listening to the Ankerberg Minute with apologist and best-selling author, Dr. John Ankerberg. Some Christians are uninterested in the secular philosophical ideas taught in our universities because they seem unimportant. But is it right to ignore these ideas? I believe we do so to our detriment. Ideas being debated in our colleges and universities will eventually make their way to our government leaders and spread throughout society. The great Princeton theologian J. Gresham Machen once said, What is today a matter of academic speculation begins tomorrow to move armies and pull down empires. As Christians, we must not stand by and allow unbiblical ideas to gain ground. Jesus insisted that we love God with our minds. It is part of our duty to engage the world of ideas with biblical truth. For additional resources on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org. All right, welcome back, folks. And we are doing a special edition of Theology Matters, a special debate edition. The first hour we spent uh, time looking at the doctrine of divine simplicity and impassibility and just had a fantastic uh, discussion between Dr. Brian Huffling and uh, Mr. Zach Hicks, <clears throat> and thoroughly enjoyed that. So for the second part, we are going to look at uh, natural theology and uh, whether some of the traditional arguments for God's existence work. Um, just kind of as a as a little segue here, um, some people have kind of thought of this debate as the Calvinist versus non-Calvinist debate. I just want to make it clear that there's a lot of Calvinists that would also hold to uh, classical theism. So it's not uh, Calvinism versus you know non-Calvinism uh, in this section as we kind of look at the classical versus precept approach. Uh, you have guys like R.C. Sproul, Gerstner, <clears throat> Warfield, etc., who, who are all classical guys, and there's, there's many more. So just keep that in mind, and uh, let's go ahead and bring our guests back on, Dr. Huffling and Mr. Hicks, are you there? I'm here. All right, so I think, uh, I think Zach, we were going to have you take uh, about five, ten minutes or so and just kind of lay out uh, some of the reasons that you would um, have problems with classical apologetics or natural theology. Um, okay, uh, well, let me do it this way. Let me let me lay out why I think we should do um, apologetics in a way contrary to that, and then we'll see we'll see the contrast there um, because the contrast okay. will be the contrast will be obvious. Um, right. Okay. So um, the approach to theology that I uh, support is uh, commonly known as presuppositional apologetics. Um, I really don't like the term. Uh, other scholars like uh, K. Scott Oliphant really don't like the term. Um, and it's because uh, the language just kind of gets mixed up in it. And, they, uh, you know, you, you spend too much time battling misunderstandings of what the position is. So we prefer to call it uh, covenantal apologetics, right? And, and, and here's the, the basic premise 
uh, premises that we hold to when we're doing apologetics. One, um, when we're doing apologetics, what we're trying to convince people of is Christian theism, not theism in general. Um, the, the classic example of this is Anthony Flew, who was convinced of the fine-tuning argument for God's existence, uh, but he never gave up his naturalist assumptions as to what was the only way to gain actual knowledge. And so he died as a theist, but, as, but just as condemned as he was when he was an atheist. It did him no good whatsoever. So first of all, we want to suggest that... Um, what we're arguing for is is Christian theism, um, not just theism in, in any sort of broad sense. Um, and, and this is not to suggest that uh, classical apologists don't share the gospel. They do. Uh, my favorite classical apologist, William Lane Craig, uh, shares, has shared the gospel in every debate and everything I've heard from him, but it's always been separate from his other apologetic arguments. And, and we as covenantal apologists, would reject that. For us, evangelism and um, apologetics are the same enterprise. They're not. They're not things that you do in conjunction with one another. They're. They're something that you do singular. Um, and, and so we also hold that every man on earth, every man and woman on earth, is in a covenantal relationship with God. Okay. They are. They. They are expected to put faith in Jesus Christ. And God's made a covenant with, with man that if he does that, he will give man redemption. Okay, so every single person on earth has a specific relationship to that covenant. They either have affirmed it and therefore are Christians, or they have not affirmed it and therefore are um, non-Christians and are standing opposed to God. Um, further, we would suggest that because every human being knows that God exists and suppresses that knowledge if they are not saved, that um, that the time taken to argue to a uh, theistic God in general is not necessary. They know God exists. They've suppressed that truth, but they know he exists. So the, the trick then becomes just bringing the gospel, all right? Um, and then uh, for the last key point in terms of how the actual method works, uh, I think we should point to, to Paul and how he argues in the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 17, uh, Paul is in Athens, and he is standing before the Areopagites. Um, very, it's very interesting that uh, before they took him to the Areopagus, they referred to him as a, uh, the, the original Greek term is seed picker. Uh, so this has the image here that he's just saying random things and, and tossing them out. Um, I find this very interesting uh, in relation to the conversation we just had because it seems to me that if Paul was preaching something akin to Aristotelian metaphysics, uh, that he would have made a lot more sense to the Athenians than he actually did. But anyway, Paul is addressing the Areopagus, and he immediately starts pointing to their unknown god, and he start, and he makes reference to two quotes by pagan Greek uh, poets um, in reference to being God's offspring, 
and um, in relation to um, in him we it, uh, well two quotes of this in him we live and move and have our being um, and for we are indeed his offspring okay so he uses these two quotes from two Greek philosophers and and we might say oh look you know here's some um, neutral ground between the the pagan and between Paul. But when we look closer, we see that it's not neutral ground at all. Uh, Because when the pagan poet makes those statements and makes those claims, he's talking about, uh, uh, when he talks about him and his, he's referring to Zeus. He's not referring to the God of the Bible. So his statements are false. But when Paul takes those statements and gives them their proper referent, which is the one true triune God, then those statements become true. And what we what we hold as covenantal apologists is that very often what appears to be neutral ground um, for us as as apologists reacting with either dealing with atheists or dealing with non-believers of a general theistic sort, um, that the ne- the neutral ground doesn't actually exist like we think it does. For instance, if an atheist says, um, "I believe we can all use logic." Okay, on the face of it, it sounds like something that we and the atheists should be able to agree on, and this should be able to be a neutral ground um, from which we can springboard our discussion about apologetics. Um, But if we dig deeper and go behind that statement, the reasons that the atheist is going to put out, if if we press him for why that statement is true, are going to be non-justifying reasons for his statement to begin with. He's not going to have good reasons for that statement because his reason his reason for why we can all use logic is not because the triune God gave us the ability to. So his statement is supported by falsehood, even though on the surface it seems like it's something that we could agree on. Now, as a covenantal apologist, I think all the classical arguments are are valid arguments. Um, I, I've utilized them in various ways before um, for, for different purposes than just apologetics and, and, and evangelism. Um, but these arguments in and of themselves are not arguments for theism, and they're not arguments based in Scripture. And because of that, um, it's something that we reject. All right. Thank you, Zach. Let's go ahead and bring uh, Brian back on. And uh, can you hear us okay there, Dr. Huffman? Yeah, I'm here. Thanks. Okay. So I guess it's your turn to uh, drill (laughs) Mr. Hicks for for a while. So you guys go ahead and uh, bring up any uh, concerns or objections that you have there. Uh, And just callers, so you know, we're we're probably not going to take calls. Uh, this show just because we want to give um, these guys opportunity. Um, I'd love to do a follow-up show with both of these gentlemen, and maybe we could uh, just do a show taking everybody's calls because I know it's going to generate a lot of a lot of questions. So we'll try and, and, and set something up. But uh, to you, Dr. Huffman. Good. Yeah, thanks, Zach, for that, that intro. That was good, and I appreciate it, and I appreciate your willingness to be here again. Um, you mentioned uh, a couple of questions, but you mentioned that the Athenians would have been more accepting of Paul if he were using arguments from Aristotle. That, well, that, 
may or may not be true, but again, the Bible is not a, as I mentioned, is not a bossy textbook. I, I am in complete agreement with you that the ultimate goal uh, should be Christian theism and not just some generic, what some people call vanilla theism. Um, part of natural theology certainly is uh, aiming to get to Christianity, the Bible, uh, the incarnation of Jesus, knowledge of him as Savior, the Trinity, all that. And so we, we certainly, as you said, uh, ultimately want to do that. Um, one reason I think Craig doesn't do that in the debates, he, he does, he mentioned Craig in his debates not having as much of a focus on the uh, gospel because in a, in a debate, you have to stick with the title of the debate, and that is normally with Craig, does God exist, not is the, is the Bible true, which he sometimes will do stuff like that. Oh, I, I, I pointed out my, that he usually does include the gospel, and I appreciate the fact that he does. I, I just yeah, think they should yeah. do the same enterprise. Right, right. Um, what is your, you say you reject natural theology, um, which I think you said that, if you reject natural theology. First of all, I want to clarify, do you reject natural theology? Um, I reject natural theology as it is used in apologetics. Okay. Um, so, so I, for instance, I own a copy of William Paley's book, Natural Theology, that's got his great watchmaker analogy in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a copy from the 1800s. I love it. It's one of the prizes of my old book collection. And I think, <laughs> I think Paley's work is a great, great thing for, um, for Christians to reflect on. Uh-huh. I don't think Paley's work is the way is the right way to try to win people to theism or win people to God. Okay. Now, I, I guess uh, what I'm trying to get at is, you know, to what extent is natural theology possible or useful? Because again, as we already brought up in the first hour, Romans one is, is very clear that Paul thinks that we can do natural theology if by natural theology we mean have knowledge of God's existence and something of his nature through creation. So do you, you agree that can be done or do you disagree with that? Um, I agree that we have a um, intuitive knowledge of God's existence, but I would not mm-hmm. state it so much as a um, cognitive enterprise uh, as natural theology is, is most normally understood uh, so okay. much as it is uh, I would phrase it as um, we as image bearers of God who are, de- who are designed to be worshipers of God when we're placed in God's creation uh, we notice um, and, and, and so it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a cognitive enterprise It has to. it's more of like a um and an in, an intuitive awareness that we have that that, that non Christians suppress. So you you don't think then that we can know God exists and things about his nature through uh visible creation, which would have to entail some kind of a reasoning process. I, I don't think any human being would ever move to um Christian theism strictly on that basis. Oh, I don't either. I don't know anybody who thinks that. Um, um, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I guess, get out how you interpret Romans one, 
uh, verses, say, 18 through 23, it seems that Paul was saying that what we can know about God is known through creation, and that's, that can be done universally, even without a Bible. So I'm just, I'm just curious as to how you interpret that. You mean you mentioned intuitive knowledge, but there doesn't seem to be any reference to an intuitive uh, process here. It seems to be done by external means, by what's visible and what's seen and created. So how do you interpret this passage? I, I interpret this passage as, um, well, I, I'll, use, I'll use an example. All right, um, and it's actually one uh, that came from my dad many years ago. I don't think he remembers saying it, um, and he certainly doesn't study philosophy or know anything other than the little I've told him about presuppositional apologetics. But okay. my dad said at one point that when you walk outside in the morning, when you walk outside in the morning, um, and you see, you know, from our houses, you see the the trees and the pond across the street, and you might see birds flying by and, and the wind hits your face, what you're interact- right there what you're having is an interaction with God because you have, you're having a moment that only you experience, and, and really if, it, if it's just you out there, only, only God knows about. So you're having a specific interaction with God in that moment. And that I believe, and, and I believe that we, because we are designed to be worshipers of God, you intuitively know in that moment what it is. You know that it's a moment from God. You know that it's a, it is a interaction between you and the Creator. And the Christian embraces it, and the non-Christian suppresses it. And so, okay. and so, when I when I say when I have my issues with with natural theology, it's not with Natural inter, uh, natural theology as a uh, enterprise unto itself. It, it, it's 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 what I believe the Bible teaches um, in terms of how non Christians will respond to to the notion of natural theology, I mean, and because they suppress the truth, then uh, that that moment that momentary interaction with God that we talked about. Is something that they're going to to reject every single time. Yeah, I don't I don't disagree with the rejection. Um, and I don't necessarily disagree with with uh, having an intuitive understanding of God per se. I don't think I don't think Paul is saying that here in Romans one. Um, it seems like he's saying that what we know about God is known through creation. And so even if we grant the intuitive imago day or just having some knowledge of God intuitively, that even if that's true. It doesn't seem like Paul is saying that here in Romans one. I mean, do you do you disagree with that? I, I would say that um, I, because I would say that the interaction with creation that Paul's talking about is um, is that interaction with God in that moment, and not say the fine tuning argument for God's existence. Oh, I don't I don't disagree with you. I'm not saying there is uh, when we go outside we're we're putting together a syllogism for there are things that change that can't go forever and there must be something that's pure. There must not at all. I think that we could somehow get there because Paul says that we can know about God's eternal power and divine nature through what's been made. And now it has to be some kind of a reasoning process. So um sounds like which which you, you may agree that that's possible and correct me if I'm wrong, that, that we can do that. You just don't think it's useful because of man's Oh, yeah, I mean, right. remember, remember what I, um, 
what I said earlier uh, when I said that I, I don't think the step of convincing human beings that God exists is necessary because they already do. So yeah, when you talk I agree about with you. I, mean, I, I think that we all know that God exists. I think it's because of creation. Um, and therefore that the usefulness of apologetic or uh, theistic claims or proofs is done to remove objections to, to try to show them that, yeah, you really do know God exists and your objections fail and here's why. Here's the argument. Bam, it's over. Next. And so um, I don't disagree with you that it's not necessary to give an argument to show God exists because we can look at him and see God's creation and know that there has to be something that created it. So I mean, I, I agree with you there. Um, I'd like to ask you, and I, I, I agree with, the, with just about everything you said in terms of your, your four statements that Christian theism is the goal. It certainly is with us, too. Um, I guess one problem that, that classical theists have with presuppositional apologetics are, are several things, and you didn't mention a lot of nuts and bolts of presuppositionalism, and I'd like to bring them up later if we have time to see what you think of them. Um, but one charge, and I'm sure you're aware of it, is the charge of circularity. And that is, if you start with the Bible, to prove the Bible's true, then that's circular, and it seems to be a vicious type of circularity rather than a benign circularity. And so can you address that for us? Um, I, I think that, well, see, how that's going to play out in a discussion with a non-believer is okay. um, what you're going to do is you're going to say, um, okay, well, how are you able... Um, to to have knowledge, and they're probably going to re- re- respond respond to something similar to, oh, because we have reason. Uh, okay, well, how do you know you have reason? And and and, and they end up with this um, circularity where they're they're trying to presume that reason exists to show that reason exists, and they're going to go around and around and around that circle, but eventually they're going to have no actual explanation that that really accounts for why reason exists. I mean, even non-presuppositional philosophers like um, Chesterton, Lewis, and Plantinga have, have shown that uh, evolutionary naturalism has this problem, right? Oh, yeah. um, and, and so, And so they're going to keep going around in that circle. And they're but they're never going to have a sufficient explanation because even if everything they say is true, and even if their underlying reasons are true, they aren't strong enough um, underlying reasons to to support their case. But I, as a Christian, on the other hand, when I when I put out my worldview, I say, look, the Bible's the word of God the way I'm saying it is. Then my ability to reason makes sense. Your ability to reason makes sense. The, the fact that we're having this discussion suddenly makes sense. The, the, and, and everything else falls in line, and the world makes sense if the Bible is true. And as a, and as a covenantal apologist, I would argue that the world only makes complete sense if the Bible is true, and that no matter what else the worldview is, problems are going serious, crippling uh Worldview-shattering problems are going to arise in every other worldview besides Christianity um, because of where they try to base um, their ultimate referent in. And so okay. because so at the end of the day, as a covenantal apologist, I'm like, look, I've got the only option that works. 
And so you're, you're, you're talking about circularity, and, and as a covenantal apologist, I would just say, no, I'm just showing them that my option is the only option that works. Okay. That leads into two questions, but the first one I'll address I'll, I'll may clarify the second one, and that is when you say the, that our worldview works only according with the Bible, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Are you saying you're, you're trying to, to – are you trying to say that you're you're making sense of the worldview with the Bible or you're making sense of the Bible with the worldview? Because it seems like you're starting with, with reality in some sense and then saying the Bible makes sense of it. So uh, what do you what do you uh, mean that, that that only the Bible can make sense of reality? Well, let's also understand um what we have going on behind this. I, I believe that as that as a fallen man left to my own devices, I have zero percent capacity to understand the Bible whatsoever. So all the truth I gleaned from scripture is the work of the Holy Spirit. Can I can right? I can I stop here and ask you a clarifying question? Yes. When you say that as a sinful person you can't understand the Bible, do you mean you don't understand what the words mean or you don't believe they're true? I don't. I The, the truth of those words I am incapable of grasping. All of the words are just when it comes to say that Jesus is God and the gospel is true because we can certainly make sense of some statements that are just factually the case, no matter if you're a Christian I, I, or not. What, what's... Um, what in the Bible makes sense without without the rest of Christian theism behind it? Well, I mean the the history sections. For one thing, we can say that the histories are true. People Wait, can no, say that how the, do we, the how do we know false. how do we know that the histories are true? By looking at reality and comparing the documents to the how how do we know that we're able to look at reality and compare the documents with any kind of rationality? I'm not sure what the problem is. I mean, again, as a moderate realist, I don't have that problem. You're trying to introduce a problem that doesn't exist for me. I don't. We know reality directly as rational human beings, and then we, we how, do, know how do we know that, that how do we know that we're rational human beings? How would you deny it? You'd have to use reason to even deny it. Right, for to all be rational just means that you you can think and you can make arguments, you can reason the things. I mean, there's no even to deny that. No, I mean, but how how do I actually know that we're not just making noise here? How do I know that we're having a real, genuine discussion? Because we understand the nature of reality and language, and that we how use do the we same language to refer to words. How do we know that we're able to? Under, how do we actually know that we're able to understand the nature of reality, and that we're not just uh, the result of a soup somewhere, of a primordial soup that, that grew over billions of years? How do we know? Are, are you saying evolution, or are you saying that well, like, like the uh, brain of that kind of kind of theory? Uh, I mean, how do we have any notion whatsoever that we are ability to that we have the ability to reason without just assuming, oh, I think I can reason, so I can reason? Because that's essentially well, what we're having to do here. Well, and 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 a direct realist, moderate realist position there. You're, you're introducing a problem that just doesn't exist. I mean, we know there are trees outside my window. I mean, I can look and see them. I don't have any reason to deny that or to, or to call it into question. I'm not calling into question whether or not the, the tree is there. I'm calling into question okay. whether or not you have the ability to know that the tree is there. 
Or you're just having to assume that you have the ability to reason, which is the no, same. No, not assuming. There's a difference between assuming and taking something as being evident. And so assuming something is just I'm coming to the table with a preconceived idea. Something is evident if it's before me and I can sense it and see it and just know what's there directly. How do you know you can trust your sen- your ability to see, touch, sense things? Why would I Why would I have reason to deny it? I mean, you're making these what if things that you can just go to infinity, no, and there's no, no reason I'm, to I, do it, that. It's very important because if if there if we're able to just go this direct realist route, then I don't I have no idea how we're going to um, to to fix the Anthony Flew problem where he may accept deism, but he doesn't actually get to Christianity. Because if he's able to be a direct realist, is that I, I don't have an epistemological gap between my mind and reality. But how do you? I, I don't that? see any reason why why I should have a problem. I mean, if you can give me some problem to overcome, then I'll try to overcome it. But just saying, well, how do you know? That's that's not a problem for me. It, 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 why? Because you just know. Yes, because we know you, directly. You just we, simply, we know reality. You just simply know. Absolutely. There's, what, there's, what, you are, you are putting you, an unmitigated skepticism on the table that is not merited. What gives you the ability to know? Because I'm a rational human being. I mean, I, I now, just how do you know you're a rational human being? You're trying to bring the table up. Right, you're, you're just asserting that you're a rational human being. I'm not seeing any. I'm not seeing any reason why we're able to actually know that is the case. Or even to know that we're able to legitimately contemplate that that is the case. You wouldn't even know I said that if you were a rational human being. There's there's no way to deny a rational human being without using reason. It is is it's an evident fact that we an undeniable fact that we're rational beings. The only way to deny that is to use reason to show we're not, which would be self defeating. I I don't have to show use reason to show that we're not. I just have to point out the fact that you're just asserting that we're reasonable, rational human beings. There's no reason to doubt that. Why would you? There, why would you doubt there's, that? There's darn good reason to doubt that because if why? If, because if there's no, I mean, unless we are um, self, uh, unless we are self-existent beings, then we had to come from somewhere. And did we come from somewhere that gives us the ability to know? that we are rational beings, or did we not? And if we did come from a, from some source that gives us the ability to be rational human beings, what is that source? And if that, and we can't just talk about that source broadly, because that doesn't do us any good, because we, for all we know... Even we if could the be source crazy. was was such that it did not make us rational, we wouldn't even be able to ask the question without being rational. I mean, there's no way to deny we're rational without if being you rational. You don't know that you're actually asking the question. I, you don't. Exactly. I don't know how what else to say to you, man. I mean, you're you're asking me to assume a a ridiculous level of skepticism uh, that not, I, I have no reason to accept. It's the level it's the level of skepticism that is necessary if you do not have a a direct knowledge of the source and reason for why we are rational human beings and my dog isn't. Say it again because I'm not sure to pick up what you said. If the it, it's the it's the necessary skepticism to have unless we uh-huh. know what the source of our reason actually is. But even if you claim you say you know what the source is, I don't see why you wouldn't ask the question, how do I know that's not being irrational? And I'm just being fooled by something. I mean, this just goes forever. 
it, it, it could not go forever. Because well, I agree with you, it can't go forever. But that's because we have knowledge of reality, and that is a it's to use it a can't go, it can't go forever because of the position. work of the Holy Spirit. It has nothing to do with our own ability. So you think I have to? We need some clear clear on it because I'm I'm not sure if I am or not. I have to have the Holy Spirit to know that the pen's in front of me. Yes. Okay. To See, rationally, to rationally, to rationally so far down the road. To rationally we, know that the, to rationally hold that the pen is in front of you, yes, the Holy Spirit has to be working in your life. Because, in my life. Because okay. if you, because if you don't, because if the 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 Holy Spirit is not working in your life. Can you define and, but I'm not sure what you mean work in my life. You mean like in the sanctification type way or just give me the ability to see it? In the in the bringing you to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ's sins and all the the influence that he has thereafter. Without okay. that, without that, you cannot consistently hold that the pen is in front of you. Can, because and you're getting this from Scripture? Absolutely you're getting it from Scripture. No, 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 I'm saying you, you're you're deriving that claim from somewhere in the Bible. Can I see that, that passage, please? Yeah, we're, we've been looking I'm just, at I'm it. I'm just curious as to where you would want to get that level of uh, that, we, that position from. When when we when we see that uh when we see in scripture that God is the source for everything. Mm-hmm. Ontologic see this is what we're gonna get in our methodological distinction is that you're saying that God is not only the ontological source but also the epistemological source. Yeah. But is is that, is that right? Is that an accurate statement? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. And that's always been the distinction between the classical and the presuppositional model. Um, because before we get into, before we can even talk about a transcendental type argument or proving Christianity is true because of impossibility contrary or whatever else, I mean, we are so f- more fundamentally distinct in our overall view of reality. I mean, I don't think I have a, a reason to doubt the pins in my hand, and you're saying I should. And that's a lot more fundamentally interesting than, or fundamental than how you win someone to Christ. But where would you point in Scripture to this? I mean, I, I agree with you that we're sinful and that without God we wouldn't even exist, let alone know anything. But I'm, I'm curious as to where you would point in the biblical canon to show that I can't know anything about reality without the sanctification of the I would point to John 1. I'd point to Jesus as the Logos. Let's go. Without him, uh, without him there is nothing. Without him, the, the entire reason behind the universe gone, doesn't exist. That's I agree with you, but that's not saying that, that I have to have a special work of the Holy Spirit to know that I'm on the phone right now. The, the, no, you have to have the special work of the Holy Spirit to consistently hold that you know that you're on the phone right now. And, and why is that? Because because what because what the Scripture says in Romans 1... Romans 1, okay. okay. What, what the Scripture says in, the, in Romans 1 is that the the person who does not hold to Jesus Christ, okay, suppresses the truth, mm-hmm. becomes futile in their thinking, yeah. their foolish hearts are darkened, uh-huh. they're, they're, they're given over to impurity, and they've exchanged uh-huh. the truth for a lie. Right. Okay? Uh-huh. Their entire, the, the, the entire structure beneath how a person knows anything 
is completely ripped apart. Okay, I would without disagree with you on that Christ. because the, the context of this passage is not about knowing reality. It's about accepting the gospel. And so exchanging the truth, I mean, it's just saying here, they know God what is, is there. What is the purpose of all of reality? To glorify God and to please to glorify, God. To, to glorify God in what way? In every way, in whatever way he's created us to do that. And, and how do we most, and, and how are we designed to glorify God? By worshiping him, by living after him, by being more and more like him. By, which is accepting the gospel. So reality, so the entire purpose, so the entire purpose of reality, is completely gone from a person's entire conception of reality if they don't have Jesus. So you're, yeah, the purpose, you, so what you're they suggesting, have failed in their purpose. I agree with you. They have failed in their purpose to glorify they God. Just, they haven't just the failed in their purpose. That they can't know that there's a bluebird on my stoop. They, they haven't just failed in their purpose. Their their understanding of reality completely misses what reality is all about. It completely misses what sustains reality and what makes reality possible. It, it's missing where reality came from to begin with. And a person who has those gigantic holes in their view of reality cannot consistently hold that they know that they're on the phone right now. You just can't because you you have no... You have no notion whatsoever as to what reality is even about, much less what it consists of. Yeah, I, I don't think that's what this passage is talking about. This passage is talking about the gospel and exchanging the truth of God for a lie, the lie being idols and worshiping the creator thing and not, not the true God. If the gospel is central to, to the entire purpose of this reality, you cannot separate the two. I don't fit in that passage, but, I mean, this, again, this is a word we're going to disagree. The passage is talking about, in, in context, a, uh, a rejection of, of uh, knowledge of God that we all have through creation. Um, and it doesn't say anything that we have to have a special... It says that we know it because we just know God's made it plain to us. Um, and, and it's odd, I think, that, that the presuppositional position is that God has made us... Um, in a, in, a, in a way, in a, a nature that is sinful to act in that very nature, that, that is to exercise reason. Uh, God, God did not make us in that way. In what man, way? Sin, man's sin put him in that nature. Man's sin put well, him yeah, in that nature. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm, I'm saying it seemed like the use of reason with this presuppositional model is somehow sinful in trying to uh, operate no, in, in the in the in the in the presuppositional approach, since that's the term that we're going to use, is it, it, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you you want a covenantal approach? The reason fine. that it's I don't like covenantal is because, as Devin's already said, um, well, maybe you don't mean it the same way that in the reform sense. Uh, covenantal in the sense of a relationship. Okay, I'll I'll do uh, it. Yeah, side, quick side note: I am a Reformed Baptist. But I disagree with Scott, uh, K. Scott Elephant when he says that uh, he says that it's essential to reform theology to be presuppositional, uh-huh. and okay. uh, I, I don't agree with him there. Um, okay. But anyway, um, back to, back to what we were tracking on. Uh, where were we? Um, right, Brian. Did you have uh, a different question? Did you want to move it along? We got about. 
20 minutes left. I don't know if you guys wanted to stay on this topic or did you have another... Um, I'd be kind of interested to hear maybe Act 17. I know both classical and presuppositional apologists will use uh, that passage. Uh, would that be something you guys would be willing to discuss for a few minutes? Okay. That, that is that is actually, I think, the essential, the essential passage on discussing these two views, because it all depends on what you interpret Paul doing here. Um, and I've already kind of given my take on it, so if you'd want to go there. Well, I mean, I, I would agree. I thought it was kind of odd that we went here, but as it says, Paul reasoned from the scriptures, um, and God is our God. Paul is, is making a case, and of course he's doing it from a, a biblical point of using the scriptures. Um, as, as a classical apologist and, and classical theist, I wouldn't disagree with doing that, but uh, he is reasoning with him. I just think we're going to end up reinterpreting that word reason to mean he's somehow not appealing to their intellect, but he's throwing out some kind of, I don't know, argument. I don't know how you call it an argument. It's not, not that I'm not appealing. It's not that I'm not appealing to their intellect, and, that, and that's okay. Uh, it's a it's a uh, misconception that I think I think one I think we as coming into our presuppositional apologists do a bad job on a consistent basis of explaining the difference, and um, on the other hand, it's a question I get seen get asked almost every time somebody gets asked about presuppositional apologetics on any kind of program. So, what we're not saying that the person cannot use reason. We're saying that their ability to assert reason is borrowed capital from the theistic worldview, and that they mm -hmm. don't have a consistent explanation for where that ability to reason came from unless the Christian worldview is true. So we're not yeah, I would saying... Agree with you up to a point. We're not saying that, that atheists are stupid. We're not saying that they don't use intellect. We're not saying that they don't understand syllogisms. I mean, Christopher Hitchens was an extremely intelligent human being. Mm -hmm. But, but would you say, I, I, I guess you would say the Holy Spirit was not working in his life? I, 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 who, who the Holy Spirit wants, wants the Holy Spirit gets. That's, I, I guess that's a the most colloquial way to to put out Reformed theology as possible, but who the Holy Spirit wants so if, the Holy if somebody Spirit knows their uh, external surroundings, that's only done be, that's only possible because the Holy Spirit is is working on that person. If some no, if somebody comes, if somebody puts together rationally and stops suppressing their knowledge of the truth, and comes to the Christian worldview, that only happens uh -huh. because of the work of the Holy Spirit. What only happens is coming to the Christian coming to the Christian worldview only happens, and, and and here's the here's the flip side of that. I don't coin. disagree with that. And here's the flip side of that coin: that if the Christian worldview is true and is rational, mm -hmm. I would assert that every other potential worldview is by definition inconsistent. Irrational and false. Yeah, I would definitely give you the inconsistent and false. I don't know about irrational, depending on what you mean by that. Um, irrational, the way I, I, I'm using it, is it's 
contrary to reason or or, or possibility. Um, I, 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 would know, say, just, I, I would say that no other worldview besides Christianity is possible. I would certainly go that far. And actually, yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah. And, and actually, actually, interestingly enough, um, from the classical school, I think uh, I think Plantinga's modal ontological argument shows that. I think it shows that very, very firmly. It shows what that that the that only other that the only possible worldview is the the only possible uh, rational worldview is the Christian worldview. Yeah, I mean, I think the only true worldview would be Christianity. I guess. Um, how do you demonstrate that? How do you how do you demonstrate that that uh, rationality itself is not possible without the Bible being true? So, if I'm an atheist, if I can put an atheist hat for a moment. How how I'm not sure how that works, and I guess we're getting into this. You didn't use this word, but transcendental type argument. But how how would you convince me of that? That's, that seemed like a tall glass of water to fill. Um, well, I, I think actually convincing someone of these arguments, it, regardless of which method we're taking, is a tall glass of water to fill, um, especially since we ultimately have nothing to do with it. I, I mean, the Holy Spirit has used, and, and that's the other thing I think that should be noted, the Holy Spirit has, has used both of these methods of apologetics to bring people to God. So I, I think, you know, so I think there's, there, there's that to be to be said. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I would say that when the Holy Spirit made that move, the person's own reasoning capabilities had very little to do with it at all. Um, nothing to do with it, in fact. And, 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 well, why, why did Jesus, why did we were full of Acts and, and that Jesus gave irrefutable proof of the resurrection? Why, why would that need to be necessary if there was no uh, intellectual at all, and why would God make us intellectual if if that has nothing to do with worshiping Him or coming to know that His God is um, true? One, I I don't think the fact that Jesus chose to do it that way establishes that Jesus doing that doing it that way was necessary. I I don't think I don't think Christ showing up after His resurrection proves that Christ showing up after His resurrection was necessary to prove to humankind that He was actually resurrected. Uh, I, I I would. What would it take besides that? that? Just an intuitive work of the Holy Spirit. It just the the Holy the Holy Spirit could. I mean, reveal that to it. And look, I never saw Jesus in His resurrected form, and I believe. Um, that in fact, the Scriptures say, uh, "Better are those who don't see and believe." I mean, I mean, there. It doesn't indicate though in that passage that it's not a, it's irrational or there's no proof. I mean, we 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 base. I, I believe it because there's good evidence for it, and I believe that the Holy Spirit has illuminated me to the truth of it. But it's it's, it's he's not divorced that through my mind. But to get back to my question, tactically speaking, how do you demonstrate that someone's epistemology is just impossible without Christian theism and the Bible being true? What, how do you show that? Um, you would show that um, by pointing out the the inability to um, 
the the inability to demonstrate good reasons for why for why man turned out to be rational. And I don't well, think you can I don't do that in other worldviews. I mean, if I'm an atheist, if you don't mind me playing atheist for a minute, I'm not an atheist, obviously. But if you don't mind me just kind of, this might be easier for me to ask than having to be around about it nice. I can just be an atheist. I can account for rationality in the Islamic point of view or or a, a Jewish point of view. You don't have to have the gospel per se. I can do it on a Buddhist worldview. What is it about Christian theology? Uh, he, uh, I, I don't. Specific? I don't think. I, I don't think you can account for. Um, I don't think you can account for rationality in the world as we live in it without the Christian worldview. I think that's a better, a better way of stating it. Okay. Um, so, so for I'm, instance, I'm really not clear how that would be demonstrated. So, it's, so you don't for mind. instance, in, in the in, in the Muslim worldview, okay, um, the Muslim worldview. <clears throat> would like to suggest that we can be rational that 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 we can be rational in their worldview and that their worldview accounts for the world we live in okay um but then we have these relationships of love with one another, and there's no and and though Islam claims that God is loving. There's no mechanism for for God to demonstrate His love without His creation because He's completely singular in person. So the Muslim worldview isn't accounting for everything that we have in our world. Um, this goes back to some of the issues that I'm having with the very strong sense of divine simplicity because I, I think the the attributes of God expressed in 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 the real genuine reactive ways that he interacts with us um, are, are extremely meaningful to conveying Christianity as a as a worldview that accounts for the world as we live in it. Because I, I, mean, I, I, I agree with you ultimately with that. Take my hat off for a second. I hate to get um, But what, you're, what you seem to be wanting to do, which is, if you can do it, I'm on board. But, but I mean, it's not like I don't want this to work. I just don't see how it would work. Um, you're, in order for what you're trying to say to be true, you, it seemed like you would have to make Christianity the only logical possibility, not just a better possibility. Well, um, and, and I think that's what the Bible teaches, is it not? I, I mean, because look. Yeah, but I'm not going to get it to you as an, as an atheist. I mean, I, I don't, as, as an atheist, doesn't believe he's not going to give you the Bible. I mean, I, I okay. want to know so without what the does, Bible. What does and so what does the Bible and so what does the um, atheist have in his worldview that takes the place, takes the role of what the Bible is is in my worldview? Is it is it his autonomous reason? Because as Plantinga and Lewis and Chesterton have showed, he can't account for that. He can't account well, I agree for, with you that if you're talking about consciousness and reason, and that's that's a huge problem. I don't disagree with that at all. But there are other worldviews that are theistic that can account for that. I don't. I don't think they can. I, 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 I really. Know. I'm trying I, to see I, what, I don't think, what I don't think they can. About. I don't think they can. I don't think they can account for reason. There's a difference between accounting for reason on an island and accounting for reason in the context of the world we live in. Some other theistic religions may be able to do the former, but they can't do the latter. Okay, give me an explanation because I'm not quite clear on what you're trying to differentiate. So, um, well, I mean, going back 
to um, my example with Islam. Okay? okay? Islam can account for the notion of rationality on an island by itself. Okay? But they can't account for rationality for, for, for rationality in a world that exists with all these interrelations between beings um, and all these I- emotional and, and, and personhood contexts because their God is, is only one person. So their God, God their, their God, person their God can logically. their God can provide no context for what a relationship should be. So when we talk about how we should act towards one another, their God doesn't have to react to people the same way that people have to react to people, and their God has no interaction with any other being, with any other person of his own caliber, so he has no, so there's no standard for what a good interaction between human beings actually is. I, mean, I agree so, with you. I think that the Trinity is a better better illustration of, of love within uh, relationships, but I don't see a logical necessity no, there. Without without the Trinity, there's no perfect standard for what a good relationship is. Why does that necessitate Christian theism? Why, why no. do you have to have a perfect example of what a relationship is? Why can't it just be part of creation? Because otherwise, because otherwise, um, morality, the the good no longer exists without it. What is the standard? What is the standard by which we are supposed to interact with one another? If there is no example laid out for us by the deity that we worship, if, if, our, if the deity that we worship is not the source for what the good interaction is, and so Hinduism falls on this same context, all the other non-Trinitarian monotheistic uh, notions fall on this context. Um, the the some of the extremely um, polytheistic notions. Um, Fail on the notion uh, on, on notions of internal inconsistency before they even get to that point. Mm-hmm. So I disagree with you on that. So so is, is where is our standard? Just so I'm clear. Sorry, go ahead. I, I just you know the the moral argument is actually my my very favorite apologetic argument. And now and now it, what I like what's interesting about the moral argument is that the moral argument as a transcendental-style argument seems to get a free pass in broader philosophical circles that other forms of the transcendental argument don't get. I think that's very How is it transcendental? It's transcendental because we are appealing to this standard of morality that we're all aware that it, we're all aware that it exists, and we're, we're calling on, we're, we're, we're asserting that a, a Christian theistic God has to exist for it to be possible. So you're saying God has to be moral for us to be moral? There has to be, for us to have an ab, an objective standard of morality, uh-huh. God has to be a moral being. And what's more, I would argue, is that God has to be a moral being in relationship with himself. Because otherwise, we have no standard for the good in our reaction, in our interactions with other persons. Okay. Well, there are Christian theists who deny that God is a moral being. No, there aren't Christian theists that, that, that deny that God's a moral being. 
I don't think God's immoral being. I don't want to get off track. Craig denies that God's immoral being. It depends what you mean by moral. Uh, by moral, well, I, that's true. I, I think de- defining what do you what do you mean when you say God is not a moral being? Because there, there's a very good chance that I have no issue with it. We're just defining the term moral being differently. Uh, God does not live up to some moral perfections that like like we do. He's not. We have a more a, a morality in that we have to live up to certain standards. God doesn't have that. And that's probably what you mean. That, I would say that God. No, I, I would say that, that when I when I say that God is a moral being, I would say that He is a being that um, acts in a moral exemplary way, but His own nature is the standard of that morality. So we, we'd be fine yeah. on that front. This would be a different conversation. Okay, okay gentlemen, we got uh, we got like three and a half minutes left. Let's do this. Let me give you guys each a minute. Um, kind of tie any loose ends you want to. Uh, Mr. Hicks, you go ahead and take uh, take a minute, and then we'll go ahead and kick it over to uh, to Dr. Huffling. So go ahead. Okay. First and foremost, thank you so much, Dr. Huffling, for the discussion. Um, it's been great. I think it was a pretty good example of the different ways of um, approaching these questions that Christians yeah. have. Um, and I and I think that uh, and I'm glad that there are brothers who disagree with me on it because God does choose to use multiple forms of apologetics to win people to Him. I'd say the the core of covenantal uh, apologetics is the notion that when we are we are trying to show people what their covenantal relationship to God is, and we're calling them to change it. In short, we're evangelizing people. And because we believe, because I believe so strongly in that covenantal relationship with God, that also ties directly into the first part of the conversation we had with natural theology, because I believe mm-hmm. God interacts with us in a covenantal way. Okay. Okay. Dr. Huffman, go ahead. My turn. Well, thank you again, uh, Devin, for having us both on, and thank you, Zach, for uh, the uh, stimulating and fun conversation. I do appreciate your time in doing this, so if we can continue it, continue our own personal relationship, that would, that would be uh, very um, meaningful to me. I uh, These are very important topics to me as a philosopher of religion. They're fun. They're what I love to do. Uh, it seems to me that the biggest difference between uh, Zach and me on the second topic is our, um, as as he said, our, our view of how philosophy and and theology relate, and it would be interesting, maybe further down the road, we can have a discussion on how our philosophy relates to how we interpret the Bible, because that's going to be the fundamental distinction, namely where we have a, uh, we did the disagreement, again, seems to very much be on the ontological versus epistemological requirement from God, and that's what we'd have to zero in on, I think, to make it more progressive, but it was very good, I do appreciate uh, both of your time. All right, thank you so much, both of you guys. Did a great job. Really appreciate you guys coming on. And uh, you know, at Theology Matters, that's what we've done for three years. We've really uh, taken time to look at uh, apologetics, look at different apologetic methodologies, and uh, consider both of these men, of course, uh, dear brothers in Christ. And uh, you know, we can disagree, but I think I think uh, Dr. Uffling and Mr. Hicks, you guys both agree that. Uh, we can work together, and we don't have to be divisive uh, on this issue. Absolutely. Would you guys Amen. agree with that? Absolutely. Great, great. So you guys uh, 
appreciate you guys modeling that show for us and uh, that discussion, and we'd love to have them back again uh, in the future and maybe do another show and, and uh, take your phone calls. But I uh, just want to thank everybody again for joining us. Uh, come back next week. I will have my friend Brendan Helms on. We will be looking at uh, Thomas Aquinas' view of sexual ethics. Uh, he has done this show or uh, this paper for Evangelical Theological Society, and he'll be here to share it with us. So uh, be sure to join us next week. God bless.